Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 54. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and this week we have two new fantasy stories for you. Our first offering is a tale of love, loss and change in Too Delicate for Human Form. This is a wonderful short story exploring the fragile nature of people and their relationships with their pets. If you could make your best animal friend human, would you? Author Kate Gardner is a British horror and fantastical author with more than 100 short stories published. Several of those stories appear in her collection Strange Men in Pinstripe Suits, from Strange Publications, 2010. She is also the author of four novellas, Theatre of Curious Acts, Barbed Wire Hearts, In the Broken Birdcage of Kathleen Fair, and This Foolish and Harmful Delight. Her chapbooks, Nowhere Hall and The Sour Aftertaste of Olive Lemon, have sold out, and she is currently working on a novel. She can be found online at kategardner.net. Our narrator is Heidi Hotz. Heidi is not just another voice. She's a voiceover artist, with a range of personalities that varies from mom to the business corporate to the friendly girl next door. She's been in the industry for more than ten years and has worked on TV commercials, radio, documentaries, audio fiction, and narration in general. She can be found on LinkedIn. Now don't forget to feed your goldfish before you sit down and listen to Too Delicate for Human Form by Kate Gardner. A trail of dead goldfish wound toward the pool where Jenny's aunt drifted face down. Her aunt's silver chain, its pendant and iron key, dangled from the prongs of a leaf rake. 
Jenny put the chain around her neck and wondered if the fish had tried to save her aunt or themselves. The iron key dangled between her breasts, irritating her skin. Following the trail back into the house, she phoned for an ambulance. To the corner, the fish were a suicide note. To Jenny, they were family. The world blurred. Rain lashed the funeral car's windows, turning the graveyard into a sodden, watercolor painting. Grays, browns, and greens bleeding. As the car pulled away, Jenny imagined the pallet a collection of mourners. Goldfish ghosts gathering in their human form. Beside Jenny, Coral pressed her nose to the window, trying to swallow the rain. Her elbow knocked the window button, and it rolled down, allowing Coral to lean out, her red-gold hair fading to blonde in the squall. Spray hit Jenny's hand. She scratched the patch of inflamed skin that ran from her thumb to her elbow. She should have left Coral in the tank at Cloister Fishes. She shouldn't have tried to make her a friend of her own. Cloister Fishes specialized in goldfish. Over the years, Aunt Lou had bought a variety. The bug-eyed Celestial Eye, the Black Moor, the Shabunkin, otherwise known as Gabe, Hassan, and Marvin. But Jenny had always wanted a veil tail, despite her aunt's warnings that the breed were too delicate for human form. I heard about Lou's fish, Adam said when she entered the shop. Not about her aunt, about her fish. It wasn't purposeful, Jenny said. She wouldn't have harmed them. She wouldn't have harmed herself. I, I didn't mean... Lou treated her fish like family. Better than. Adam's eyes met hers, and then he glanced away busying himself with the fish food display. New brand, of course you don't have to have any fish to, I, I mean. Jenny crossed the store to the tanks. Black moors skulked around the bottom of the tank adjacent to the veil tails. I just want one, Jenny said. Adam slid the tank lid and gathered the net and a plastic bag. Do you have a favorite? If I had the energy, I'd take them all. Jenny pointed to a fish with the longest sweeping tail. She's so beautiful. I need a new tank, too. It wouldn't feel right using Aunt Lou's. It belonged to them. She didn't add that Gabe had shoved the tank off its stand the night before they all died. Or maybe I'll put her in a bowl. As she left the store, Jenny said, I'll name you when we meet. You never can tell who a fish will be. The veil tail swam within the bath, circling its bowl and peering into its concave hollow. Jenny pulled her aunt's chain from beneath her blouse. The wooden box that contained the fish food rested on the bathroom. This was it. She drew in a breath, opened the box, and took a pinch of the magic flakes. She sprinkled them into the bath water. The fish gobbled the food. It took a moment for the transformation to take shape. First, the gills bulged and the body swelled until it seemed the fish would burst, and then its fins flapping so fast the fish blurred. The goldfish morphed into a girl. The girl shot up, spraying water across the bathroom. She gasped for air. Once her lungs were full, she turned to Jenny. Her mouth flapped open, unable to form words. It's okay, Jenny said. It probably wasn't. Jenny helped the girl out of the bath and into Aunt Lou's dressing gown, conscious of her ravage patch skin against the girl's newborn flesh. Flakes of Jenny's dead skin clung to the bathrobe. If Aunt Lou were here, she'd take a metal brush to Jenny's skin and scrape it until only raw skin remained. Who? The fish girl peered into the mirror. Who? Who am... Who am I? Your name is Coral, Jenny said, stealing her aunt's line, she added. 
you bumped your head and forgot everything that happened to you. Who are you? I'm your best friend, Jenny. Coral's hand flapped to her forehead, sweat-dripped. Don't be sick. They'd known a fantail, Eduardo, who lasted only a few hours. Perhaps she should have tried to live without someone. Aunt Lou had said people did it all the time. Maybe it was easier to live when there was no one to lose. Or harder. I'm Coral. Coral nodded at the mirror and her reflection agreed with her. I'm Coral. Jenny lay next to Coral, fighting sleep. She wasn't certain how long Coral's first transformation would last. Each fish was different. Countless times Jenny had sat and watched the revelries, afraid to go to bed because when Aunt Lou was drunk, she'd forget Hassan, Gabe, and Marvin were fish and that they could lose them at any moment. She grasped Coral's hand and held it to her chest. Her dress for the funeral hung from the bedroom door like a shroud. As Coral's hand slithered away, Jenny choked back a sob. Transformed back into a fish, Coral squirmed across the pillow, gasping for water. Jenny scooped her up and dropped her into the fishbowl. She'd bring her back in the morning. Coral pressed her fish eyes to the bowl, staring out at Jenny. Do you remember being human? She hoped not. Who am I? Coral asked, water dripping from her hair. You're Coral. You bumped your head and forgot. Me. It's Aunt Lou's funeral today, but you don't have to wear black. Aunt Lou would appreciate the fact a fish attended her funeral. Jenny fussed with the neck of her blouse. It irritated her psoriasis, but she shouldn't scratch. Scratching only made it worse. If Coral would move away from the bathroom cabinet and its mirror, Jenny would open the door and slather cocoa butter onto her neck and calm the itch. Her aunt disapproved of creams. She said it made her skin reliant. Coral pressed her fingertips to the mirror. I forgot everything. Then she turned and ran from the bathroom, trilling. I forgot everything. I forgot everything. I'm Coral. I'm Coral. I'm Coral. Jenny pressed her forehead to the mirror. Her neck burned red. I'll always be Jenny. Something shattered in the bedroom. Coral stood amid the ruins of the fishbowl. Water dripped from the bedside table, pooling on the floorboards. Downstairs, the doorbell rang. Stay here, Jenny said, and mind the glass. When she opened the door, a dour group greeted Jenny. The undertaker tipped his hat. Aunt Lou's home, along with Gabe, Hassan, Marvin, and an assortment of fish she'd never met, but who had formed a trail from pool to kitchen. The undertaker had allowed her to place a fishbowl, sans water, in the coffin. Home. I just... Can you give me a moment? I need to... We're not quite ready. Was anyone never ready for death? Of course, the undertaker said, stepping back. Coral stood in the wardrobe doorway, running her hand through Jenny's clothes. She chose a red summer dress that Jenny had never worn. It came just above Coral's knees. Watching the girl dress, Jenny knew that Aunt Lou would have loved Coral, as would have Gabe. Coral twirled, causing the skirt to fan out like a tail. Did Coral remember her fishtail? Did it bother her like a phantom limb? We're going to a funeral, Coral. You're very sad. Am I? Coral said. Should I cry? Jenny balanced at the edge of the bed. At her feet, glass shards glistened. Her toes scraped above the glass. If she stabbed her foot, she wouldn't have to stand at the graveside and see her aunt lowered into the ground. A sob caught against her throat. 
Best if she thought of the coffin as an empty box. If they only sold magic flakes to change the dead into the living. Downstairs in the hallway, someone coughed. Jenny gathered her courage and Carl's hand. Stay human. We should go. I'm very sad, Carl said. Please don't turn into a fish. If Coral changed mid-funeral, she'd have nothing more than a rain puddle in which to swim. Then there was the matter of how she'd explain the transformation to the priest and the undertaker. As if she were an anchor to human life, Jenny didn't let go of Coral's hand until the funeral mass and burial were done. Sitting in the back of the car with Coral leaning out the window gobbling raindrops, Jenny had never felt so alone. The undertaker watched them through the rearview mirror. Jenny pulled Coral away from the window and wound it shut. Stay with me. At the house, Aunt Lou's house, Adam Cloyster waited at the door. He carried a bag containing a goldfish. Jenny shivered. Everyone needs a friend, Adam said, then blinked as Coral emerged from the car. Oh, it has nowhere to live. How sad. I smashed the goldfish bowl because it bothered me, Coral said. Did you put the fish in your aunt's aquarium? Jenny jabbed the key in the door. It's... Oh, there wasn't any fish, Coral said. The fish is in the bathtub, Jenny said, opening the door. Oh, but I was in the bath. Coral stopped and pressed her eyes to the bag. Her skin shimmered, scales rippling against skin, hinting at the impending transformation. Grabbing Coral's hand, Jenny pulled her up the stairs. I'll show you. Jenny said, hoping politeness would stop Adam from following them. Behind them, the stairs creaked, his steps slower than theirs, cautious. Coral flopped to the bathroom floor, her fish self buried within the dress. Jenny gathered the dress and dropped it into the bath. The landing floorboards groaned. The coral fish swam from the neckline. Jenny gathered the dress and dropped the sodden fabric into the laundry basket just as Adam entered the bathroom. Where's your friend? He asked. Why in the plastic bag you're carrying? Jenny said. I meant your human friend. She's lying down. Tough day. Adam sat on the edge of the bath and placed the plastic bag inside the bath water. He didn't open it. I would have come to the funeral, but I figured considering the circumstances of Lou's death, might seem odd and perhaps callous that I brought a fish instead of flowers. The box containing the fish food, which sat perched on the corner of the bath, wobbled behind him. The key protruded from the lock. It's a lovely thought. Would you like a drink? As they left the bathroom, something heavy splashed into the bath. The box. Jenny bit her lip and blinked against tears. Let it have fallen closed. Let it be watertight. The box contained her only supply of the magical fish food, and Aunt Lou had left no instructions as to where she could purchase more. As they headed downstairs, Adam pressed his hand to her lower back. She supposed he thought her tears were for her aunt and not for the girl who, this moment, thrashed into life for the final time. My aunt didn't happen to buy her fish food from you? Jenny asked. Water splashed. Sounded more like tidal wave in the bathroom. No, but I'm sure our brand is as good. What's that? Adam turned. Noise. Coral would need reminding who she was she would never be again. Perhaps if she gobbled the entire contents of the box, she would last a lifetime. Adam reached the bathroom before Jenny. As he dragged Coral out of the bath, her foot caught the plug, releasing the water. 
Playing the double hero, Adam scooped the plastic bag containing his gift fish out of the water, while Jenny wrapped a toweling gown around Coral. Your fish must have gone down the plug hole, I'm sorry, Adam said as if this was his fault. Are you okay? The plug hole was too small for a fish to swim down, but she hoped he didn't notice or question that. Jenny rubbed Coral's skin within the toweling robe, psoriasis flaked from Jenny's skin and clung to the scum that circled the bath. Her hands shook. The flakes resembled the fish food. She scratched her skin, fingernails digging into the scabs. No, Aunt Lou wouldn't. But of course, Aunt Lou would. If her psoriasis was the food, then every time Aunt Lou took a medical brush to her skin and left her inflamed, she was gathering food for her fish. Leave the bathroom, Jenny said. Me? Coral whispered. No, not you. Please, Adam, I'll only be a moment. I should leave. He should, and yet, she said, I'll only be a moment. Please stay. Adam left the fish in the sink. Jenny placed the plug in the hole and ran the tap. She opened the plastic bag and allowed the fish to swim out, not worrying that it hadn't acclimatized. Coral held her hands to her face, examining her knuckles and her thumb, marveling at them. She does remember. Jenny scratched her arm until several flakes dropped into the water. The fish, another veil tail, gobbled them. Its features stretched and bulged and flapped until a man fell from the sink, cracking his elbow against the bathtub. Coral screamed. Jenny pressed her hand to her arm, to her skin, to evidence that her aunt had betrayed her. The doorknob dug into her lower back. It rattled. Adam, are you okay? What's going on? Everything's fine, Jenny said. The fishman's scream added to the chorus. He rocked back, clutching his elbow, and she could think of no name to offer him. No comfort. Coral sucked in air, calmed her scream. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, Coral said. You are. You are. You are. Jenny wrapped her arms about herself. As the door pushed open, she fell forward. What? Adam started, and then noting the naked man, his mouth flapped open. Who am I? The fish man asked. Indeed, Jenny stood between them. Adam, this is my cousin David. No, no, he's not. No, he's the fish, Coral said. What's going on? Adam asked. Jenny wiped away a tear. I just found out my aunt wasn't who I thought she was, and, and I'm left wondering if I'm who I thought I was. What if I'm like them? What if I'm barely breathing? Jenny turned to the door and raced down the stairs, slipping on the final step. Who would scoop her up if she turned into a fish? Who would place her in the bathtub or an aquarium or, God forbid, a fishbowl? She skidded across the kitchen tiles, following the path the dead goldfish had weaved a week before. Her skin screamed as she dropped into the chlorinated pool. Let me remember who I was. She sank to the bottom, arms and legs flapping but gaining no purchase. A week's worth of autumn leaves clung to her skin, affixing to the tile floor. A final leaf pressed against her lips and mouth. She sucked the leaf in, choking against it and the wall of water that filled her lungs. Remember. Remember. I love my pets. Truly, I do. But for me, I think I love them as I do because they aren't people. I can only imagine the havoc my cat would wreak were she a human. With thumbs, oh boy, the thing she'd get up to. Moving right along. 
It's time now for our second offering of the show. Have you ever considered what a steampunk version of Peter Pan might be like? Add some gears, a flywheel and some reanimation, and you have an idea of what's coming up in The Island of Peter Pandora by Kim Leckin-Smith. Kim attained a first-class honours degree in English Lit and Creative Writing from the University of Glamorgan and was tutored by award-winning author Graham Joyce while studying for her MA in Writing at Nottingham Trent. Formerly a copywriter, advertising exec and website designer, her desire to write fantasy and science fiction novels took precedence. Her novels include Tourniquet, Tales from the Renegade City, Cyber Circus, and Queen Rat. Her stories appear in the anthologies Celebration, Myth Understandings, Further Conflicts, Pandemonium Tales of the Apocalypse, and The Mammoth Book of Ghost Stories by Women. Her short story, Johnny and Emmy Lou Get Married, was shortlisted for the 2009 British Science Fiction Association Short Story Award. Kim is a regular guest speaker at literary events and has run numerous writing workshops at colleges and conventions. She lives in two-fifths of a Victorian Gothic mansion house with her mini-demon of a daughter and dark lord of a husband. She believes she is well-placed to connect with her readers, having a hazy attitude to maturity and eclectic dress sense and a true zest for the weird and the freakish. She can be found online by following the link on the Triple F. The story is read for us today by Peter Nixon. Peter is a full-time programmer and full-time student. He's the editor and producer for Green Eggs and Horror, a Dr. Zeus-inspired short story anthology. He narrates and writes in his spare time because he doesn't believe in normal hobbies. You can find out more at greeneggsandhorror.com. And so, the time to grease those gears and tighten that drive belt has passed. It's time now for The Island of Peter Pandora by Kim Leckin-Smith. Peter caught the fly between his palms. The insect buzzed and tickled. Aren't you the jolly little irritant? Peter parted his hand slightly and tried to peep in. When the fly flew out, he snatched at it. A trace of gore stained his hand. Funny bug. Peter didn't bother to brush off the insect's remains, but picked up the wrench and plugged his hands into the lost boy's stomach. Those rogues, they'll do for me one day, said Nibs in his chiming voice. Ha! They'd have to catch me first and Peter Pandora is not easy to tie down. Peter lifted his sharp chin a notch. Locating the flywheel under the leather heart, he adjusted the torque. A squeeze of oil from a can and the gears moved smoothly again. I am nothing if not exceptional. Peter slid the bolt plate back across Nib's stomach. He cleaned his hands on a rag. You're the bravest and the best, Peter. Nibs craned his legs, rocked onto his porthole backside, and got up off the grass. Steam oozed from his joints. Peter nodded sagely. I am. When the Lost Boys failed to concur, he shot them a savage look. What say my men? He bit his bottom lip. The animatronic band wheezed into life at the command. The finest mind in the French Empire, Tootles cradled his fat bull belly. Peter had fashioned it from a condenser casing and a girdle of steel ribs. Master of the fair isle of Sarabangina, we are loyal to the last. Curly nodded enthusiastically, exciting the frayed wires that poked out his skullcap. The last! 
echoed the twin tinies, who Peter had not bothered to name. They were rather a nuisance with their rudder flippers, which got stuck in the sand or left visible tracks up the banks like turtles come ashore to lay their eggs. Slightly, Peter adopted a grown-up's tone. I have a headache, said Slightly, as farts of steam escaped his back boiler. And with mother being on the gin and father having run away with the fairies. Peter crossed his arms. He considered Slightly's head, which had been all but bashed off, with only a couple of wires attaching it to the body. The rogues shall pay for their attack. Peter unhooked the wrench from his utility belt and wielded it. What say my men? The finest mind in the French Empire. Master of the Fair Isle. Enough, cried Peter. And apart from the taps of water pipes and the crackle of wood inside their boilers, the lost boys fell silent. Three hours later, and Slightly's head sat back on his shoulders. The iridescent blue of day was giving way to the black and oranges of dusk. Peter led his robot band through the tall reeds, kicking up crickets and newborn mosquitoes. The air was full of flavors, cocoa, coffee, and sea salt. Peter breathed them in. This was his favorite part of the day when the stars his father had loved so much began to wink overhead, and the rumble in his belly told him it was supper time. Did any tuck survive the raid? He called over a shoulder. Papaya, banana, sweet potato. Toodles sounded proud of their haul. Peter had hoped for a fish supper, but he let things slide. His men had survived being attacked by the rogues when collecting provisions earlier that day. Plus, they could always go a-hunting again tomorrow. A banquet fit for kings, he managed. His spirits cheered at the sight of the raggedy treehouse, with its smokestacks and fat brass trunk of his father's telescope pointing skyward. Run on ahead, you and you, he told the twin tinies. Get the water boiling under the supper pot. Light the lamps. The pair set off, rudder feet swishing through the reeds. A minute later, Peter saw the glow of lamplight at the windows. Smoke trickled from one of the tall stacks. Peter entered the clearing. Toodles, Slightly, Curly, and Nibs arrived alongside oozing steam and sweating oil. Moths danced in the twilight like fairy folk. The detritus of scrub and husk made a noisy carpet underfoot. No creeping up on me, thought Peter smugly. He stepped into a wooden pallet, grabbed hold of the ropes, and heard the winch start up. The ground dropped away, and he sailed up to the treehouse, that great nest of palm leaves, reeds, flotsam, and jetsam, turtle shell, coral chunks, and driftwood, Crawling in at the tarpaulin-covered entrance, he slammed a large iron lever forward and set the pallet back down to fetch the others. Standing up and placing his hands on his hips, Peter took in the chaos of the room. The hairy chunks of seven coconut trees sprouted up through the living quarters. Golden orb spiders nestled among the eaves, their sun-colored skin forming a glittering canopy. Home, sweet home, Peter rocked back onto his heels and separated his toes, planting them on the reed matting with a satisfying sense of grounding. James and Wendy Darling had come to Sarabanjana, a tropical island located northwest of Madagascar Main Island and forty nautical miles from Nosy B, in the year of our Lord, 1889. A twelve-man strong crew assisted them to offload the numerous tools of Mr. Darling's trade. Spy glasses, constellation maps housed in leather tubes, an oversized compass with gold and ivory inlay, easels and other drawing apparatus, and, of course, his pride and joy, a giant brass telescope. Mrs. Darling, meanwhile, was content to haul ashore her own box of tricks. Metal working tools, saws, hammers, piping, sheet steel, and every conceivable nut, bolt, and screw. 
While many ladies would have protested at the steaming wilderness, Wendy embraced it, befriending the tribe in the south of the island. She enlisted those strong, cocoa-skinned men to help her build an observatory among the trees. Peter had been four years old, his sister Bella, six months, leaving behind the dreary greys of London for Sarabanjana's endless blue sky and ocean. Both children felt as if they had stumbled upon paradise. Three years later came the three bad events, as Peter called them. First, a tremendous cyclone storm which sunk his parents' daw offshore. Second, and by far the more devastating, the death of both his parents from typhoid fever. What made it worse was that both of those incidents happened within two weeks of one another. And third, the islanders muscling in on his Bella's seclusion and insisting so kindly and so absolutely that the youngsters go with them. Peter had refused with every violent response he could muster. Bella, though, went with them. At the age of seven, Peter had found himself alone, with only the sounds of the waves lapping the shore and the contents of his mother's workshop for company. Time to fill your cake hole! Slightly stood at the brink to the observatory. His insides turned over with a faint claking sound. Peter peered into the telescope's eyepiece. Venus, the morning star, and his father's life work shone in the night sky. Such an elegant turn of phrase, slightly, he muttered. Want me to put on false airs like rogues? Slightly elevated a backside flap and let out a guff of steam. Peter slid the cap across the eyepiece and made his way across the room. Weaving in and out the map stands and tables full of paperwork, he slapped slightly on the arm, producing a hollow rumble. I really did use up the odds and sods at the bottom of the drawer when I created you slightly. The lost boy seemed pleased with the fact. His boiler bubbled softly as he led the way to the dinner den. Peter, so glad you could join us. Toodles tapped the space on the bench next to him. Have a seat. There's a good chap. Peter eased in besides Toodles and thought the crueler part of him wanted to say, No, I won't. I shall sit opposite between the twin tinies just to show who is boss around here. By way of compromise, he vowed to ignore Toodles for the evening. So what's the plan, Peter? How do we make those rogues pay? Nibs banged his fist against his stomach plate, a reminder of the torn internals he had suffered at their hands. Peter spoke through a mouthful of turtle and sweet potato stew. We lure them in from their hidey hole, and then we garrot them. Sounds marvelous, said Curly. Masterful, added Toodles. How'd we do it? The twin tinies asked in unison. Peter put his elbows on the table and leant in. The lost boys mimicked him. I am going back below, and I am going to raise the tick-tock. His animatronic companions ooed, then fell silent. The cicada song of the night punctuated by the whir and knocks from their steaming bellies. It was Slightly who spoke up. What's the tick-tock? What's the tick-tock? Peter leapt onto his seat. What's the tick-tock? He stepped onto the table, narrowly missing his bowl of fruit, mush, and the lost boy's flagons of oil and platefuls of grease. Only the bringer of destruction. It is the hand of God, the great leveler. He knocked a fist off his breastbone. It was my mother, Wendy Darling, who told me of its power. Be careful, son. The tick-tock is not a toy. It likes to buck and spit. But you'll tame it, won't you, Peter? Tootles showed his metal tooth pegs. Naturally. First, though, I've got to commandeer the thing from the deep. Peter danced up and down on the table, upsetting a jug of rainwater and splashing through it as if he was jumping at puddles in the park. I do so love to go a-hunting, he cried. Can we come too? Piped out the twin tinies. Only I, Peter puffed out his chest. 
This quest requires cunning and lashings of cleverness, besides. He dropped to his haunches and ladled a mouthful of stew into his mouth. I'm the only one who knows how to swim with the mermaid, he said thickly. Later, when the Lost Boys had completed their chores and joined in Peter's rousing rendition of Jolly Rain Tar, after which he had instructed them to stoke their boilers, wind innards, and sup enough water to tide them over until the morning. Then companions and master had gone their separate ways. The Lost Boys took up patrol duty on the treehouse's vined balcony while Peter climbed into his parents' reed-stuffed mattress, beneath a canopy of mosquito netting. Besides the bed was the Gramacorda, which his father had used to archive his discoveries. A few times, his mother had thought it amusing to speak into the horn and record the bedtime stories she told Peter onto one of the foil scrolls. While the heat had warped the greater part of his father's recordings, three of his mother's tales still played. That night, Peter selected her rendition of The Tin Soldier. Lying back on the bed, he let his mother's spirited narration lull him to sleep. He was woken once during the night by the sound of a footfall on the ground below. Peter imagined he heard a chilling, all-too-familiar grunting, but sleep overtook him again. The sun was high in the sky when Peter awoke. While the Lost Boys breakfasted on their oil and grease, their creator tucked into spiced fish baked in banana leaves. Soon the conversation turned to the night watch. The Lost Boys denied any sign of intruders. Peter remained haunted by the conviction they were wrong. Rogues have curdled my dreams long enough. Peter fastened his utility belt at his waist and slammed his hat down on his head. Time to fetch up the tick-tock. He knocked a hand off his brow in salute. See you later, alligators. Half an hour later, and having battled his way through the mosquito-infested reeds, Peter arrived on the north shore. The sand was toasty between his toes. Waves foamed at the shoreline. The clear blue ocean stretched away to tiny islands known as the Four Friars. Two large rocks kissed a little way out to his left. His mother's workshop burrowed into the cliff to his right. At the entrance, Peter cocked his head and leant in, drinking from the fresh water which streamed down the rock. He stepped inside the workshop, blinded by the sudden transition from brilliant daylight to shadow. It was dry inside, precisely the reason his mother had selected the cave, and battened it with wooden shelving. Peter lit oil-filled dips in the rock. The makeshift sconces flickered whenever he walked by, causing his shadow to dance over the walls, seemingly of its own accord. Numerous engineering supplies had gone down with his parent's ship, but the workshop was still well stocked. Several shelves were dedicated to trays of nuts, bolts, screws, and nails. Giant bobbins were wound with rubber pipe, while tinier versions held various gauges of copper wire. Two workbenches stood on stilts on the uneven surface. One was stained with oil, the other with blood. Tools hung off nails between the shelves. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hammers, bow saws, hand drills, chisels, scalpels, vices, and tourniquets. One basket held clean bandaging, the other soiled. Standing in his workshop, surrounded by the tools of his labor, Peter was glad he had come alone. As much as he enjoyed his elated status among the lost boys, there was a tendency for their restricted audio to grate. More than anything, he longed for the stimuli of sentient conversation, but his efforts to create companions had birthed all manner of dark breed among the rogues. He reminded himself, gaze lingering on the blood-stained bench, one of them worse than all the rest. Hooky, the ape-man. Had Wendy Darling known that, in introducing new animal species to the island, she would provide her son with the raw materials to investigate and reinterpret life, she might just have tipped her caged specimens overboard, en route, and drowned the lot. Instead, she was the enabler for Peter's experiments, having left behind science books, engineering diagrams, penciled notes, and a veritable operating theater. Much good it does me, Peter protested out loud. Not that he had any intention of moping around and feeling sorry for himself. Oh no, Hooky and crew had played their final trick on him. It was time to deal with the rogues like any other group of wayward children. A long tarpaulin-covered object occupied the far end of the cave. Peter pulled off the cover. The mermaid's polished wood shone on the greasy lamplight. Pitched between the perfection of motherhood and the gutsiness of a rogue, Wendy Darling had always demonstrated a soft spot for the underdog. In engineering terms, her pet favorite was an untutored Catalonian inventor called Neroy Monturiel e Esterel. To the young Peter, his mother's daytime stories were as engaging as her bedtime stories were soporific. Imagine it, Peter, she would say, a glint of passion in her eye. While his competitors were busy developing submarines for military purposes, Monturiel was a communist, a revolutionary, a utopian. He saw his machine as a way of improving the lives of poor coral divers. Here, Peter. She would lay the book open before him and stab a finger, grubby with oil, at the illustrations. Such a beautiful design. A wooden submarine supported by olive wood batons and lined with copper. Why copper? She would shoot the question at him like a bullet. For structural support? No, Peter, no. To stop shipworms from eating the hull. Even as an intensely intelligent child, Peter had been haunted by images of giant worms chomping down on the wooden submarine, and while he was nonchalant about Monturiel's morality, he did appreciate the inventor's design ethic, and had proceeded to apply it to a solo submersible he nicknamed the Mermaid. 
A pair of polished wooden sleds allowed him to push the mermaid out of the cave, and threw the sand to the water's edge. He paused for breath and mopped his forehead with a forearm. Seeing it in the sunlight, he was reminded just how perfect a machine the mermaid really was. The head was a wood-staved cabin with a broad strip of glass tied around its middle like a ribbon. This cabin housed the controls and a driver's seat, which revolved to allow for a 360-degree view through the glass. The boiler was built into the torpedo-shaped body and heated via a mechanical furnace. Potassium chlorate, zinc, and magnesium dioxide were from his mother's dry store, and while their combination produced enough power to heat the boiler, it had the added bonus of generating oxygen to supplement the supply in the cabin. The true magic, though, was in the mermaid's tail, five feet long, covered in wooden scales and tapering to a brass-plated rudder. Pushing the mermaid offshore, Peter held his breath and ducked under the water. He swam beneath the submersible and emerged in a small moon pool to the rear of the cabin. Securing himself in the driver's seat, he twisted a stopcock to flood the boiler and began to work his way through the operative checklist. It was the 28th of February, 1893, when the storm hit. Peter's family had been living on the island for eight months, and while numerable supplies had been brought ashore, some larger items were stored in the traditional da boat, moored offshore. As Peter had learned since, December to March saw violent cyclones bombard the island and its neighbors, the usual tropical serenity giving way to torrential rain and clockwise circling winds. The daw was well made, used to carrying heavy loads up and down the East African coast. But even with its lateen sail lowered, the daw could never have weathered that assault. Sometime between dusk and dawn, the ship tore loose of its anchor, drifted and sank near the second fray. His parents had called it the devil's work. Peter had come to view the shipwreck as a treasure trove. The water was fantastically clear as the mermaid dipped below the surface. Peter moved the weight along the line by his right shoulder, adjusting the angle of the mermaid's descent. The smooth action of the sail drove the submersible forward at a steady rate of four knots. All around him, shoals of fish danced, their brilliant colors transforming the ocean into a fairyland. Corals burgeoned below like giant fleshy roses. A solitary turtle drifted by, buoyed by an invisible current. Once the creature stirred the water with his front flippers, then drifted once more, the nonchalant old man of the sea. Lying besides a great crease of volcanic rock, the daw's sharply curved keel reminded Peter of one half of an eel's open jaw, and he felt a jolt of discomfort he always did at the sight. The feeling gave way to excitement. Peter wanted to fly out among the wreck and peel strips off it for no other reason than it might please him. The rational side of him argued that the wreck was best preserved for future foraging. One thing he did intend to secure that day was the tick-tock. His mother's ledger listed it under weaponry, twenty-four pounds of copper. He knew the tick-tock had been stored in a large chest with a skull and crossbones etched on top, his mother's idea of a joke. Given the tick-tock's practical application, that box now lay at the bottom of the ocean. The tick-tock had been stored in a large chest with a skull and crossbones etched on top, his mother's idea of a joke given the tick-tock's practical application. That box now lay at the bottom of the ocean, wedged between the crease of rock and the ribs of the daw. Up until that moment he'd had no need for such an item, but Hookie and the rest of the rogues had become a damnable pest. They needed swatting like sandflies. The boiler, to the rear of the cabin, mumbled soothingly. 
It was hot inside the mermaid, but Peter didn't mind. Yes, he risked drowning or being baked alive in his handmade submersible, but he'd always entertained the idea that to die would be an awfully big adventure. He pulled on a leather strap above his head to regulate the heat off the boiler and to stabilize the craft. A small adjustment to the sliding counterweight and the submersible hovered alongside the large chest. Peter Pandora, you possess the cunning of a crow and you are as wise as the stars, his father used to say. Peter sucked his bottom lip. Indeed I am, father, he whispered. Scooting his seat forward on a greased wooden rail, he took hold of a pair of iron hand grips. His fingers pressed down on ten sprung-levered valves. Arms unlocked on the front of the cabin. Each metal limb was tipped with a grabber. Peter manipulated the hand-grip valves to open and close the grabbers and secured a hold on the handle of the chest nearest the curl of rock. The other handle was trapped beneath the boat's mast, and while the arms siphoned off power from the boiler, magnifying his strength threefold, he still got slick with sweat as he tried and failed to pull the chest free. "'Move, you bloody thing!' he cried, irritated at the situation, but pleased with his use of the swear word. The chest stayed wedged beneath the mast, and he had to break off trying to move it and catch his breath. Water pressed all around, muffling the sounds of the boiler and the churn of the engine. Peter stretched out his fingers and was about to work the hand grips again when something large crashed into the cabin's exterior wall. He spun around in his chair, staring out the window strip. Legs disappeared from his eyeline, the soles of feet like black leather. Peter whipped his head the other way and caught a glimpse of horns, thighs like fat hams and a snout. When the mermaid began to rock, water lapping at the moon pool and threatening to flood the cabin, Peter knew he had attracted company, and not that wail of a shark or a manta ray. The hands rocking his craft were strong and animaltronic, with claws that scraped the hull. Rogues, Peter bared his teeth gleefully. You're no match for Peter Pandora, he cried, kicking at the sides of the cabin to add his beat to theirs. He concentrated on the hand grips and tried again for the trapped handle. Bodies hurled themselves against the submersible. Peter was grateful to have a grip on one trunk handle since it helped anchor the mermaid. Wild things, he called out to the creatures pestering him. To catch a fellow unaware. But that's the nature of rogues, isn't it? Faces appeared at the glass, part mechanical, part animal. The rogues stared in with colorful glass eyes, which reminded Peter of Christmas baubles. The rogue had goat horns grafted onto his iron plate skull. He butted the glass and blew bubbles out his ear canals. All bluster and no backbone, Peter stuck out his tongue. By way of reply, one of the rogue crew tried to come up through the moon pool. Peter stamped on the creature's skull cap. It sank down and swam away, air escaping from steam-release vents at its knee joints. He'd scared one off, the rest appeared perfectly happy to continue rocking the submersible. Meanwhile, a dark shape was materializing through the dust cloud kicked up by the rogues. The figure swam with broad, confident strokes the scythes that served for hands sweeping out in glittering arcs. Peter slammed one hand forward, driving the corresponding grabber hard at the mast, splintering the rotten wood. Hooky drew closer at speed, the sweep of those long, muscular arms matched by the frog-like pump of his legs. Underwater, Hooky's fur was dark and sleek, his silver teeth shone. At last, Peter got a lock on the other handle and leant back in his chair, pulling the hand grips towards him. Secured in the mermaid's arms, the chest lifted off the ocean floor, Peter pressed a foot pedal to lock the arms in place, then released the hand grips, adjusting the weight counterpoint to allow for the burden. He raked a hand across a bank of switches to release the sand ballast in the storage cylinders and unleash a fresh head of steam to drive the engine. 
he engaged the throttle and powered up, rogues tumbling aside in the submersible's slipstream. All but one. Hookie maintained his hold on the craft, buffered by the pull of the water. He brought his great muzzle to the glass and stared in before letting go, seemingly of his own accord. The last thing Peter saw as the mermaid ascended was Hookie dropping away into the darkness. You must stay with us now. My wife will care for you well. We are a good family, and together with the rest of the village we will feed and clothe you. The islander's representative had appeared kindly and concerned. He'd smiled and clapped a hand on Peter's shoulder. Seven years old, Peter had surveyed the horseshoe of islanders. Bella's hand had gripped his, not because she was scared of the Malagasy with their open faces and choppy way of talking, but because even at three and a half years old, she'd known he wouldn't stay. Over the years, Peter hiked to the south side of the island on occasion. Hidden at the forest's edge, he spied on the villagers and his sister. The malady Bella had been born with was as much a gift as a trial, and one that suggested she was only capable of registering one emotion at a time. On occasion, she would kick and wail in blinding rage, but there were also calmer moments when she would concoct detailed puzzles from the rows of shells she painstakingly arranged. Sometimes, her laughter was high and tinkling. Sometimes she sat and stared out at the sea for hours, as if her mind had flown far away. Peter would see one of Bella's Malagasy brothers come and take her hand and sit with her a while. Perhaps her new family thought her enchanted. Peter was pleased that Bella was happy. He was also sick at heart and resentful. For the most part, Peter had been left to his own devices on the north side of the island. He didn't interfere with the fishing trips or beach barbecues or fama de hana ceremonies where the Malagasy would exhume the remains of their ancestors, wrap them in silk, and entomb the bones once more. In return, the Malagasy left him to play puppet master with his band of loyal lost boys and itinerant rogues, the latter steering clear of the islanders ever since one inquisitive specimen had been speared in the chest like a giant turtle. There was one exception to the rule, though. Two days after his underwater expedition, Peter was holed up in his workshop with the tick-tock when he caught a glimpse of movement at the mouth of the cave. Tiger Ma, I can see you. He waited, staring out from the gloom. All he heard was the noise of the ocean. Satisfied that his mind was playing tricks, Peter gave his attention back to the tick-tock. Dipping a small scrubbing brush into a coconut shell containing a solution of salt and vinegar, he set to work removing the patina from the brass. A stone struck him on his left temple. Damnation! His eyes flashed aside. This time he saw feathers of afro hair poking up from a crop of rocks at the cave's entrance. Go away before the rogues get you, girl! He called, slamming down the scrubbing brush. As quick as Peter liked to think he was, his reactions didn't compare to Tiger Ma's. She fired off two more stones from her slingshot. One struck Peter's thigh, the other nicked his ear. Enough, Tiger Ma! Don't start what you can't finish. Using a ruler as a makeshift catapult, he sent two slugs of nails towards the rocks. Apparently the scatter gun approach worked. He heard a gasp. Peter Pandora, you are a sorcerer and deserve a hundred stones upon your head, came the cry from the rocks. And you are slow-brained and a savage to boot. What are you cooking up today, evil boy? demanded Tiger Ma, standing up and suddenly striding inside the cave. She approached his workbench, hands on hips, lemur-large eyes blinking as they adjusted to the dark. How fantastically fearsome she looked, thought Peter. Her face painted with white swirls, her afro hair spread high and wide like wings. The shift she wore was a faded rose pattern. Her feet were bare. Tiger Ma pointed at the copper barrel of the tick-tock. Will that be a tail or a nose? 
Neither. It is a method of upping the stakes against the rogues. Ah, so it is a weapon, Tiger Maw glared, daring Peter to deny it. It is the weapon, savage girl. I'm going to fill those rogues with so much lead they won't have brains intact to bother my lost boys and me ever again. By rogues, you mean the demons you yourself conjured? They are mischief-makers, but nothing more serious than children in need of their father's affection. But instead you cast them out as failed experiments. Tiger Maw leant in close. Peter felt her breath on his lips. It made them tingle. Would you have us behave the same with your sister Bella? She stabbed a finger up at the roof of the cave. Bella is angry with her maker for taking away her parents, making you a stranger and giving her an unusual nature. Should she be destroyed too? Peter folded his arms across his chest. What do you know about my inventions? You have no more right to apportion feelings to a rogue than to a jackfruit. As for Bella, she is a free spirit who must be allowed to fly. Your people should not try to contain her, else she might just rise up and bite you on the nose. Ah, Bella is a good soul, said Tiger Ma, with a dismissive flick of a hand. The only bad around here is a little boy who plays with flesh and machinery over choosing a normal life alongside his sister. The girl's big black eyes softened. My family will still take you in, Peter. You can have a home. And see my life drain away until I am old and wrinkled, just another bag of bones for your people to cherish. No thanks. I'd rather stay here with my lost boys. Tiger Ma sighed. To Peter it was a sign of submission, and he put his nose in the air. And what about the rogues? It was Tiger Ma's turn to cross her arms. Under the lamplight, her white war paint was luminescent. Peter picked up the scrubbing brush and attacked the TikTok's patina again. I'll kiss each and every one good night with this, then fashion myself a grandfather clock from their remains. Tiger Ma stared at him, and for a moment Peter saw himself through her eyes as the true monster. He started scrubbing again. When he next looked up, the girl had gone. Lying in bed listening to his mother's bedtime stories on the Gramacorda, Peter would occasionally feel the pinch of loneliness. At such times he would question the ethics of his companion machines. Life was his to give or take at the flick of a switch or the turn of a key, but where he had really strayed from the moral path was in his creation of the rogues, in particular Hookie. Most rogues owed their origin to the livestock his parents had introduced to the island, pigs, goats, sheep. Hookie, though, was a rangy old orangutan his mother had rescued from a street performer in Borneo. Shot through with arthritis and pining for Wendy, Peter had decided to put the creature out of its misery. But had the family pet deserved vivisection and animatronic rebirth? Had any of those poor dumb animals wanted the gifts he had bestowed? Intelligence, conscious thought, and all the suffering that came with an awareness of one's own mortality. That these moments of lucidity were rare testified to Peter's absolute self-belief. Secure in his divine right to mix, mess, and mesh, he created monsters. Now it was his choice to destroy them. Evening settled around the circumference of the camp. Toodles had done an excellent job of collecting dry wood. The fire pit roared, spitting sparks like orange shooting stars. Slightly had unfastened a little at the neck again. He walked to and fro, muttering. Midnight feast, he says. Go cook it up, he says. What from, say I? Fairy dust? In spite of his limited larder, Slightly had magicked up a decent spread of deep-fried hissing cockroach with its greasy chicken taste, vegetable and coconut curry, a platter of bright orange jackfruit pieces, resembling dragon scales laid out on a knight's shield, 
spiced rice, and crab claws. In lieu of a table, Peter had instructed the lost boys to bring up a bench from the workshop. No one had bothered to clean it, so they ate amongst sawdust and iron fillings. The moon was fantastic, pocked and shimmering like a cherished half a crown. Everyone tucked into the feast, Peter crunching up cockroaches and greasing his chin with crab juices, the lost boys taking great mouthfuls, swilling the useless matter around their jaws and disgorging the lot into the personal spittoons. Peter didn't mind. He had his feast. Now all he needed were a few extra guests. Ten more minutes passed. The lost boys were in danger of mauling all the food. "'Leave some to attract the blighters!' he shouted. His mechanical companions froze mid-gab. They brought their arms back down slowly and fell silent. "'They should be here by now.' He bit his bottom lip, scowled, and forced himself to drop the childish expression. "'Fetch the gramacorda, Curly, and don't get your hair stuck in it this time when you wind it. Twin things. Bring the music scrolls.' He crossed his arms and stared out at the velvet dark. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Before long, Curly and the twin tinies descended from the treehouse on the elevator platform. Curly set the gramacorda down on one end of the workbench. Each twin carried a number of cylinders. What song shall we have? demanded Peter. Whist the bogeyman? Jolly little Polly on a tin gee Daisy Day! cried Tootles, patting his tin-pot belly contently. Peter ignored him. Maple leaf rag it is. Curly saluted at the order. Locating the right cylinder, he slid out the foil sheet, fed it in, then cranked the stylus into place. As he worked the handle, his wire hair bobbing, he became just another extension of the machine. The ragtime tune plinked and plonked, cutting through the piece of the forest like swords through reeds. Peter tapped his feet to the music while watching the peculiar lurching dance of the twin tinies in the center of the clearing. They made for pleasant little morsels of bait he decided, his eyes sharp and his mouth tight. Curly sent the crank round and round, keeping up the tempo. Tibbs forgot his sentry duty and belched steam from his mouth as he tried to recreate the musical notes. Only Tootles remained seated, no doubt eyeing up the last dregs in the oil can. Peter strained to listen past the music and the mechanical orchestra. Was that the dreg of scythes across tree trunks? There was no wind, but something whistled out among the reeds. Hush now, Curly. He glared at the lost boy, who let go of the crank and steeped away from the gramacorda, as if it was nothing to do with him whatsoever. The rest of the gang fell still, and the silence pressed in. Yes, there it was, the distinctive yo-ho-ho of rogues' pistons and the swish of their footfall. They came through the reeds, fifteen not-quite-anythings, his animalizations, bred on steel skeletons with nerves of copper wire and clinking steam-driven insides. The rogues were the monsters to his Frankenstein. Stepping out from among the reeds, the creatures spaced themselves out around the edges of the clearing. Each carried a makeshift weapon of a long wooden spike or a rock hammer. They showed their silver teeth and breathed heavily. Lastly came Hooky, two pig rogues moving aside to make way for him. The lost boy seemed to understand the point of the feast, that big shiny homing beacon, and stood up straight, chests plumped. Peter had not built it in them to no fear which was not to suggest either the lost boys or the rogues had turned out as pliable as you might have imagined. This was especially true in Hookie's case. Peter, Pandora! The ape-man spoke slowly, feeling the weight of each syllable. His tremendous, muscular shoulders were matted in orange hair. His metal breastplate reflected the moonlight. What a wonderful feast! And music, too! Are you holding a party for us? A party for rogues? What a notion! 
No, Hooky, I am throwing you awake, hissed Peter. Hooky's long arms swung by his sides. The huge scythes serving his hands glinted. In which case, I must apologize, for I have made the intolerable faux pas of attending my own wake while still alive. Which I have to say seems an idea worth prompting. After all, there ain't a man alive who wouldn't risk a breach of etiquette under those circumstances. Except you aren't a man, are you, Hooky? So how could you know? Ah, that old chestnut. So you can give an old ebb a voice to speak, but refuse him humanity on the grounds his nose is a little too bulbous. Hooky gestured to his hairless gray face. Or his hands a little too extraordinary. He held up his sides. You gave me a headache, said Slightly, lunging forward. He stopped short of the ape-man, his motoring whirring inside his chest. I did. At least your master was good enough to put you back together again. I wonder if he would do me the same kindness. Hookie's seven-foot frame tapped over Slightly's four. Peter had always liked to experiment with proportions. Poor lost boy. A wind-up doll without a soul. Don't go claiming a soul now, Hookie. You are an animal with a metal spine at best. Peter was pleased not to flinch when Hookie knocked Slightly aside and ran at him, the side stopping an inch short of his throat. If that is all I am, it is of your making. I have begged to continue my education under your tutorage. But no, the second I show a mite of interest in your precious books, you banish me and my kind from the only home we have ever known. The sickle hand shook slightly. Well, if you don't mind, awfully, the rogues and I are inclined to move back in and boot you and your puffing billies out. You can try, Hooky. Peter stepped back and grabbed hold of the ropes, activating the platform winch. He rose rapidly towards the treehouse, leaving the ape-man behind. Looking out, he saw Hookie beat his sides against his breastplate and let out a deep bellow. Peter responded in kind, beating his chest with his fists. It was invitation enough for the rogues to attack. Two pigs took on nibs and slightly, their spears clattering off the lost boy's chestplates. Not that rogues were discouraged that easy— they drove the spears at Slightly's skull and Nibs' tessellated arm panels. Slightly lost his head. Nibs shed scales, exposing his inner workings. The twin tinies fared better against the reanimated goats. Forming tight little balls, the twins propelled themselves at the goats' legs. Horns battered off them, ineffectual against the rudder feet and still bellies. While Tootle's belly flopped the sheep, Curly added his muscle to the assault, spiking the rogues with his wiry hair and pulling their tails. Ah, my fine men! Show no mercy to the rogues, Peter smiled. It felt phenomenally good to witness the carnage below. He was a god ruling over a universe of his own making. Do we honor you with our split guts and flesh wounds? Hooky called up from the base of the largest coconut tree supporting the treehouse. Unlike the rest of Peter's creations with their colorful glass orbs, Hooky retained the deep brown eyes of the orangutan. Peter felt a pang of longing for the companionship of the wise old ape he had murdered. You are to leave the island and swim far, far away, he told Hookie. No more night raids, no more crying at the moon, no more effort to be what you are not. And what is that, Peter Pandora? Hookie drove the sides into the trunk of the tree and began to inch his way up. I am not to be intelligence, and yet you built me so. I am not to behave like an animal, and yet you insist I refrain from bettering myself. The sides scraped up and in at the trunk. Hookie's gray muzzle moved closer. You are missing the point of servitude, 
spat Peter. You want to question and learn and exceed your master. He danced off to the back of the platform and ripped down the tarpaulin. The sight of the tick-tock set him aglow. With its copper barrel restored and polished up, the steam cannon looked like a piece of the sun. One end was enclosed in a chemical furnace chamber, the other loaded with gunshot. Peter stood behind the cannon, hand going to the firing valve just as the first of Hookie's great claws appeared over the platform's edge. The ape-man's shoulders rippled with muscle mass as he hauled himself up and got to his feet. Hookie's deep brown eyes settled on the tick-tock, which clicked over in anticipation of being discharged. I ask for books, and you give me bullets? Peter jutted his chin. You should have towed the line, Hookie. And you should have left me an ignorant ape! Hookie lunged forward, sides whirring. Peter tripped the firing valve. Water gushed into the trigger chamber, evaporated in an instant, and discharged the cannon. A starburst of gunshot escaped the barrel. As the man-ape fell, the tip of one of his sides nicked Peter's cheek. He lay at his creator's feet, blood escaping his flesh parts. His metal guts wheezed and spluttered. Peter rolled the ape-man over to the platform's edge. He rested a foot on the creature's blood-stained breastplate. Goodbye, Hookie. He pushed the body overboard. Seeing their captain defeated, the rogues took flight into the forest. Peter didn't mind. He could always pick them off another time. Below, his lost boys had suffered rather badly. Slightly's head lay a foot or so from the rest of him, mouth flapping like a fish out of water. Tootles wobbled about on one spot, belly skewered by a spear. Nibs had split open again, wires and cabling erupting from his chest plate. Curly appeared to have been scalped. Only the twin tinies looked well, preserved as they circled the clearing, fist raised, rudder feet flapping. Peter put his hands on his hips. He nodded in satisfaction. Victory was his. Letting his head fall back, he opened his throat and crowed. It took Peter three days to repair his lost boys. Rather than drag their hefty machinery down to his workshop, he chose to bring his tools to the clearing where he worked beneath the glare of the sun and well into the night. He constructed a canopy from palm leaves which he strung together. In the evenings, when the temperature was still intense, he stacked the fire pit high, more for company than any other purpose. Watching the flames, he would fancy he caught a gleam of eyes out among the reeds. Sometimes he thought they belonged to animals gone rogue. Other times he believed they were bright black, tiger moths. Once he thought he saw a glimpse of yellow hair and called out Bella's name urgently, like a lost sheep calling for its mother. When no answer came, he cursed his stupidity and returned to tinkering with his toys. At last his band of steam and clockwork men was put back together again, slightly uttered those now immortal words, I have a headache before stalking off to the platform and setting the winch in motion. Soon he was installed in the safety of his kitchen, putting Curly to good use as his cumus. Tootles broke out into an idiotic monologue on the mating habits of lemurs, and Peter was sorely tempted to smash him up again. Nibs and the twin tinies seemed unaware of any time lapse, and spun around on the spot, fists wielded as if still engaged in brawling. Peter sent the three off into the forest to hunt their clanging and hissing gradually receding until the night fell quiet again. Cicadas pulsed in the grasses. He could hear the ebb and flow of the ocean. It was all very beautiful, and all very dull. Not for the first time, since the great ape had fallen, Peter found his gaze returning to Hookie. Flies had bothered the remains all day. The creature's muzzle was mud-gray, the jaw open, the protruding tongue still and mollusk-like. Peter approached the body and gave it a firm prod with his toe. He crossed his arms and stared up at the blanket of stars overhead. For an instant, he felt the magnitude of his insignificance next to that heavenly expanse. Pointlessness threatened to crush him alive. He hated the thought and forced it aside. 
He needed more than the Lost Boys. He needed someone to truly show him the meaning of love and hate. His gaze returned to Hookie. Dare he attempt to reanimate the ape-man's decomposing corpse? It struck him as a dark art, but no more than the acts of the twelve-year-old boy who creates living creatures out of flesh and metal. And didn't all heroes need a foe to fight? By the light of the moon over a faraway island, Peter Pandora went off to fetch his tools. I must confess, this is a telling of Peter Pan I'd never in my wildest dreams have conceived of. A mashup of steampunk, Frankenstein's monster, and who knows what else. The image of Hook as a reanimated half-orangutan steam-powered automaton with sides for hands is terrifying. And why did it come to that? Why was Peter tormented by the rogues? It seems his desire to make people of his pets did not turn out as expected. In fact, Peter's greatest success was to build his people from scraps. Just another example of when to leave well enough alone. And here is a case where we hope you won't leave well enough alone. We have been nominated for a Parsec Award in the Best New Speculative Fiction Podcaster Team category. In addition to that, anything that we have or will run from May 1st, 2014 to April 30th, 2015 is eligible for the Best Speculative Fiction Story, Small Cast, Short Form category. Those stories are listed on the F website, so if there was a specific story featured in Far-Fetched Fables that blew your mind, please feel free to pop over and nominate it. And as always, Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and you can share it around all you like, but you cannot change it and you cannot sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments there too. Be sure to keep some water, or other beverage of your choice, handy, in case your best friend happens to return to fish form. And remember to keep those springs nice and tight. Until next week, bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.